You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of Yahweh. And these are their stages, according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the fifteenth day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them. On their gods also Yahweh executed judgments. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Succoth. And they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Haharoth, which is east of Baal-Zephon. And they camped before Migdal. And they set out from before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness, and they went a three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, and camped at Mara. And they set out from Mara and came to Elam, and at Elam there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. And they set out from Elam and camped by the Red Sea, and they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin, and they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka. And they set out from Dovka and camped at Elosh. And they set out from Elosh and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hattavah. And they set out from Kibroth Hattavah and camped at Hazaroth. And they set out from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. And they set out from Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. And they set out from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Rissa. And they set out from Rissa and camped at Kehalatha. And they set out from Kehalatha and camped at Mount Shafer. And they set out from Mount Shafer and camped at Harada. And they set out from Harada and camped at Machaloth. And they set out from Machaloth and camped at Tehath. And they set out from Tehath, and camped at Terah. And they set out from Terah, and camped at Mithka. And they set out from Mithka, and camped at Hashmonah. And they set out from Hashmonah, and camped at Moseroth. And they set out from Moseroth, and camped at Beni Jakan. And they set out from Beni Jakan, and camped at Hor Hagidgad. And they set out from Hor Hagidgad, and camped at Jotbahtha. And they set out from Jotbatha and camped at Abronah. And they set out from Abronah, and camped at Ezion-Geber. And they set out from Ezion-Geber, and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is, Kadesh. And they set out from Kadesh, and camped at Mount Hor, on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor, at the command of Yahweh, and died there, in the fortieth year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, 
the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. And they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punon. And they set out from Punon and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ai-Abiram, in the territory of Moab. And they set out from Aim and camped at Dibongad. And they set out from Dibongad and camped at Alman Diblathaim. And they set out from Alman Diblathaim and camped in the mountains of Abiram before Nebo. And they set out from the mountains of Abiram and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshimoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. And Yahweh spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places, and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them." Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 645 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, June 25th, 2023. That was a reading from Numbers chapter 33, the whole of Numbers chapter 33 in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. Lots going on. Lots going on. Recounting Israel's journey. But before we get into talking about how we got to this place in the biblical narrative. Uh, let's just take a, a second. Let's take a moment. Let's just reflect for a moment on what else today is. Today is, as I said, Sunday, June 25th, 2023, the year of our Lord, Anna Domini, 2023. You've got a lot of traveling, a lot of rambling, a lot of they set out from such and such, and then they camped at such and such, and then they set out from such and such, and they camped at such and such. And there's a lot of that, and it's actually something of a tongue twister to try and read these unfamiliar place names. Can you just, for a moment, if you have been from one place your entire life, can you just for a moment think about 40 years of being a camp on the move? Being a people, a whole nation, millions of people who are nomadic, traveling as one people, traveling together from this place to that place, from that place to the other place. Can you just take a moment and appreciate how different your life would be if you had traveled 
for all of it. For as long as you could remember. If you were, let's suppose, born at the outset of the judgment that God pronounced, after the assembly of Israel believed the majority opinion, coming back from spying out Canaan, if you were born that year and you were 40 at this point here in Numbers 33 or thereabouts, I think that's correct, that this is 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, come to an end, all that generation that had grumbled against God and against Moses and against Aaron has died in the desert, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're solid. They gave a good report, which was, we can take it. We can do this. God will deliver this land just as he has promised. We can do it. All the rest of the generation proceeding has died in the desert. But your whole life, if you are an Israelite man of about 40 here, your whole life, you have been a person, part of a family, part of a clan, part of a tribe, part of a nation that is always on the move. You know, it makes me think about having recently had dinner at the invitation of the Noches, a family here in Greeley, Dr. Noches, a hand surgeon, and he and his lovely wife, Julie, they have homeschool kids and homeschool family and a lovely place out in the country. They had us over. We had a lovely time. Too bad about the rain, but we made the best of it. And my family had a wonderful, wonderful time. But as I was talking with Dr. Noche and just comparing notes, comparing life stories, getting to know him, telling him a bit bit about myself and my backstory, comparing notes, it was interesting to me. He also was homeschooled. I was homeschooled. He was homeschooled. So we're talking about that. But he grew up with his family moving every two to three years because his dad was an army doctor. And then he also went into the army when his time came, when he came of age, he went into the army and got a medical degree, got medical training on the largesse of the U.S. Army. And up to that point, up to the point where he came of age, up until this point, he has lived many places. He has lived in Germany. He's lived across the U.S. He's taken his wife and their kids, and they've moved around here in the U.S. Now, they've lived in Greeley for a while now, but still, as we're talking through kind of our life stories to this point, it was Ironic to me that both of us grew up homeschooled, but then where home was on the map varied every two to three years or so for different reasons, albeit in his case versus mine, his dad being an army doctor, the army would just decide, okay, we need you over here now. Okay, we need you over there now. Okay, we're going to pick you up and we're going to drop you and your family off in this other place now. In my case growing up, we lived on the eastern half of Montana. And then we moved to the western half of Montana. And then we moved back to the eastern half of Montana. And then we moved to southern Ohio. And then about 25, I came out to find better opportunity economically in my home state in eastern Montana. I moved back to my hometown, settled my family there, brought 
Lauren and the kids, Lauren and the four older boys out. And then we bought a house in Sydney. So we moved from Glendive to Sydney. And then an opportunity came up down here in Colorado. So we moved from Sydney to Colorado. But I just, I think to myself about that conversation I was having with Dr. Noche about comparing notes on having traveled and what that does to one's perspective to have been something of a nomad growing up. And now think with me for a moment, a whole nation here is being described in this chapter as being a people, a nation, a one big family, really, always on the move. And now here they are. They're on the cusp. They're on the verge of coming into their inheritance after 430 years in Egypt and 40 years wandering in the desert. They're just about to have a place to settle of their very own. And so what's important for us to appreciate here is not that we should all be nomads and everybody should move around all the time, just like they were. No, but sometimes that's what God calls us to. Sometimes providentially, that is what God has planned for us. And then at other times, God has us to settle down in some place. And that's okay too. That's all right too. Now, on a somewhat more sober note, on a more grave note, think about the end of Numbers 33 here. Starting in verse 50, the heading in the ESV is drive out the inhabitants. So that is to say, there are already people in Canaan, and those people who are in Canaan have been there for a minute, but they've been wicked. They have worshiped false gods. And now, as a part of possessing this land, God is not just telling Israel to drive out these people, these men, women, and children. He's also telling Israel to destroy their idols, their places of worship for these false gods, destroy the symbols of their false worship. And so I would remind you of something I talked about here a while back, but I have talked about it on this podcast. I've talked about Moloch, for instance, and death works. And what's being described here in verse 50 to 56 is death works. This is death works. Now, as a refresher, as a reminder, death works are essentially desecrated symbols as a way of breaking a kind of talismanic power, even if it's just psychological, mental, and emotional, you're breaking the power of a symbol by desecrating that symbol, smashing that idol, and then nothing happens. When that God, who is represented by that idol or that altar or that temple, doesn't do anything to you, what have you just demonstrated? Well, you've just demonstrated that Maybe that God wasn't a God after all, or maybe that God is not so powerful, or maybe there's a greater God. And that's exactly, exactly what God wants to have demonstrated. That's what he wants to be communicated to Israel and to these nations that are being driven out and to the surrounding nations. He wants all generations to be able to look at this time, this place, 
and recognize that Yahweh is God above all gods. He's king above all kings. He is the Lord most high. He reigns supreme. He is sovereign over the nations. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all its inhabitants. He is God over these false gods, which isn't to say that they don't exist, but it is to say that they're no gods at all, except insofar as they solicited false worship. They're not supposed to be worshipped. They were given power and authority, in my view, this is my take on it, speaking personally, and I could be wrong, and people disagree with me, and that's okay. They can be wrong too. But my take on it is these are actual beings God made, just like Jesus casts out real demons in the gospel accounts. These false gods, Moloch and Baal, Ashtaroth, these are real beings created by God, endowed with a certain measure of authority. And this is, oh, by the way, what Paul is getting at when he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Powers and principalities and authorities over this present darkness. These gods are at root who Yahweh God is making war against. These people who worship these false gods are being driven out because they worship these false gods instead of Yahweh God. And what's curious is, too, to this point, we have been introduced to a certain Balaam. And Balaam, when he is called out by Balak, king of Moab, to curse Israel as Israel is coming towards Moab and Midian and both alike are expecting trouble. They know judgment is nigh. They're not expecting to have friendly relations here with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Balaam says, I can only say what Yahweh tells me to say. I can only say what Yahweh permits me to say, which is to say Balaam had familiarity with Yahweh, which is also to say that the people of this land had some familiarity with Yahweh. We don't know what we don't know here. And I don't want to go too far afield in the speculation here, but just to answer the oft-leveled charge against the God of the Bible and his people. We know that God is good, and we start from that. And then we come to this business of driving out the inhabitants. And what we must conclude is that God gets the assumption of goodness and holiness and righteousness. The inhabitants of this land do not. We do not come to finding out about them and reasonably assume that they are so good and so innocent. No, no, God is good. They, as we're told again and again, sometimes in detail, other times just generally, they are guilty. They have not just sinned, they've made a practice of sin. They've made it their culture to be celebrating sin, to make sin a part of their worship of their false gods. They offer up their children as human sacrifices to these false gods. They perform lewd acts and all kinds of sexual immorality with one another as worship of their false gods. They do evil, abominable things, not by accident, not secretly, but openly as part of their ceremonies, as part of their culture. 
It's not a bug. It's a feature in their minds. And yet we can reasonably suppose God has put them on notice. He did tell them this would happen. They knew, and then they carried on anyways. Think here of Romans chapter 1. God has clearly given them over to a reprobate mind, which is to say a mind not just unreasonable in the sense of not very good at it, but incapable. God gave them over to minds that were incapable of reasoning. But before God gave them over, they had already chosen that, I believe. I am not a strict deterministic philosopher. (laughs) If you could call me a lay philosopher, I believe... We really need to have the capacity to choose. And I believe that that is some of what is entailed in our being created in God's image, that God gives us the ability to choose. And it's really, truly the ability to choose. But then God also chooses. And when God chooses, that supersedes our choice. But then if God has chosen to give us the choice, well, then again, that supersedes our ability to figure out how that all works. It's not God who has tempted a people to sin or a person to sin. If a person sins, for instance, Moses is told to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but he won't listen to you. And why does God say that? In part, because as God tells Moses in that moment, way back, I will harden his heart so that he won't listen to you. But then also we see As the narrative unfolds, sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then other times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so which is it? Well, it's both. You don't have to be an expert on how that works. So also, this people, the inhabitants of the land, did God give them over to judgment? Or did they give themselves over to judgment? Did God give themselves over to a reprobate mind? Or did they give themselves over to a reprobate mind? Yes, both and, both and. And so they have what's coming. And more to the point, Israel also, lest we suppose there's something innately, inherently self-worth related superior to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God tells them here in verse 56, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Which is to say, if you don't drive these people out, you're going to become like them. If you don't drive these people out, it's going to just happen again. It's going to happen again. It's going to pick back up where it started a long time ago. And it might take a minute, but it's going to happen again. And then because God is consistent, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God is going to respond the same. If this happens again, where they go worshiping these false gods, Baal, Moloch, Ashtaroth, If they go worshiping these false gods, Israel, God is going to do to Israel what he did to the peoples that he drove out before Israel, to give to Israel this land. And we should reasonably suppose that the same holds true today as well. A people can have a sinful nature, individuals can have a sinful nature, but then also culturally and generationally, you can have sin in the mix, but then... God repeatedly, again and again, distinguishes between an incident and something that becomes characteristic and pervasive. And when it's the individual who's gone astray, sometimes God mercifully 
for the rest of the people's sake and for his own namesake and for his own purposes sake, he will strike dead an individual or a small group like cutting a cancer out of the body. But then if that people becomes wholly infected and it spreads throughout the whole of the people, at a certain point, it's terminal and that people is ripe for judgment and then the cup of wrath is poured out. And this is true not just of peoples and nations. This is also true for the whole of the human race. Think back to Noah's day and then think forward to the second coming of Christ. Think forward to the day of judgment. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you could say, well, but he promised he would never destroy again all life with a flood of waters. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's lots of other ways to do it, right? There's lots of other ways to judge. And in fact, John's revelation, last book of the New Testament, tells us there are going to be lots of other ways that God judges the people of this world who have rejected him, who have worshipped created beings, created things instead of the creator, who is to be praised forevermore. We also know from Paul's writings in the epistles that we, the saints, will judge the world and angels, both and. Similarly, I would say what you have here in Numbers 33, 50 through 56, is something like a foreshadowing where God's people are going to judge the world in this microcosm of Canaan and God's people are also going to judge the angels, that is, the idols. They're supposed to reject. They're supposed to drive out. They're supposed to make war. They're supposed to smash and break down and demolish. But then there's also, but if you don't, which is to say, you might not. You're supposed to. You're called to. You're commanded to, but you might not. And that also is something we should be acquainted with. We should also recognize that that is today. You have that same but if in an American context in the year 2023, and we want to be very sober and very careful in a certain sense, but also very diligent in another sense to be the good and faithful servant and to not be part of the but if you don't recorded in verse 55. We want to not be the but if you don't. Now, let's get into some current events items. And let's talk briefly about a story by Katie Jerkovich over at the Daily Wire. Boy Meets World star recalls creepy interaction with executive at a young age. Now, a little bit of backstory. Boy Meets World, for those who don't know, for those who didn't grow up in the 90s, like I did, like my wife Lauren did, Boy Meets World was a popular sitcom. There were lots of sitcoms that we used to watch before the days of TV on demand and streaming. It didn't always used to be the case that you could just watch what you wanted to watch. It didn't always used to be the case that you could just surf and then order a whole season of some show and then binge watch whatever your favorite show was. Nope. You had ABC, CBS, NBC maybe Fox, rural Montana. It was kind of hit or miss. When we moved around, sometimes we would get certain channels and we wouldn't get other channels as good, as clearly on our CRT TV, our cathode ray tube TVs. Back before the days of flat screens and high-speed internet, 
whatever was on, whenever it was on, that's what you would watch or else you wouldn't watch anything or else you might pop in a VHS tape and watch again, some movie that you had in your own personal library, especially if you lived out in the middle of nowhere. And then if you grew up poor, like I grew up poor, it was a special occasion if you were going to go and rent a movie, but otherwise by and large, we watched what was scheduled. We watched what was going to be on TV as it was on TV. And oh, by the way, this is back before the days too of being able to fast forward through commercials or DVR that hadn't been invented yet. Not that I knew of anyways, back in the nineties. And so you just watched whatever was on. And one of the shows we used to watch when I was a kid was Boy Meets World. And it was hit or miss. Here you've got these high schoolers going to public high school and being worldly. And so I got something of an impression of what public school was like watching shows like Boy Meets World or The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or Family Matters. I got something of an idea of what public school was like from watching these shows. Full House was another one. Home Improvement was another one. But Boy Meets World, you have these young high schoolers, these teenagers played by, go figure, teenagers. And Danielle Fischel played a character on Boy Meets World named Topanga. Topanga was the love interest for the main male character, the main male lead, this young man. She was his girlfriend and she was beautiful and cute and blonde and all the rest, but she was a real person, right? She wasn't just a character on a TV show. She was a young woman who was playing a character on this TV show. And in this little blurb, this little bit of hopefully not too tabloidy of current events reporting, pop culture reporting by Katie Jerkovich over at the Daily Wire. Danielle Fischel talks about doing a photo shoot when she was 16 and being told by an executive, a male executive, that he had her 18th birthday marked on his calendar. Now, what was he getting at? Of course, if you and I are a little older, maybe not all that much older, we understand what he was getting at was an age of consent, legally. Which is to say, he was looking forward to the day, the very day, and the very month, and the very year when she would be old enough to consent to certain activities with him. And he was planning. He at least wanted her to know or to think that she was planning. He was planning on taking advantage as soon as she was 18. He was telling her this at 16 when she did a photo shoot, which is to say if she was doing a calendar shoot, if she was shooting pictures or having pictures taken of her at 16 for a calendar, this executive was looking at her and eyeing her approvingly and was very interested in certain activities with her, which would be against the law. Certain activities of a sexual nature with her at 16, realizing he would be in major trouble legally, which is to say the only thing that was holding him back from pressuring her into a sexual encounter with him, the only thing holding him back was the fact that she was 
below the age of consent legally. Now, a couple of things about this, a few things to comment on. One, you, Gross, as she points out, she says, at the time, although the first thought when I heard that was a little like, oh, she added, quote, the immediate thought after that was, yes, because we are peers and this is acceptable and this is how you relate to peers, end quote. Quote, as a kid, I always wanted to be older. I always wanted to be an adult. I wanted to be seen as an adult. And so getting adult male attention as a teenage girl felt like, I didn't think of it as being creepy or weird, but in a romantic male gaze sense, I should not have been outwardly talked about at 14, 15, 16 years old. And in hindsight, that is absolutely wrong, end quote. Now, a few things to realize here. One, she has parents, right? Danielle Fischel had a mother and a father. And where were they? And what were they doing to protect her? For another thing, too, let's just think for a moment about reasons why parents might not protect their 14, 15, 16-year-old daughter from interactions with a male executive like this. Put very simply, if the father was in the picture, if the mother was in the picture, so to speak, metaphorically, they were thinking first and foremost about fame and fortune for their daughter, and then by extension, the benefits conferred on them by their daughter having fame and fortune. The benefits to her, but also the benefits to them as well, which is to say their priority clearly was she would continue on being this character on this TV show and having pictures taken of her for calendars and other things, promotional materials and merchandise and whatnot. And it was worth exposing her to certain characters, certain people, certain influences, because the trade-off was fame and fortune. And let's just think for ourselves a moment here, and I, I say that intentionally, think for ourselves about culture and about how culture can reinforce certain values and norms And also it can tear down certain distinctions and certain barriers or certain inhibitions. And let's just think to ourselves about the kinds of decisions being made more generally by a male executive who knows he can't do certain things, but there are no restrictions up to this point. And so he's going to get right up to that line. And do you think, just think with me for a moment here, do you think even in the 90s, that that male executive was totally wholesome. If he was saying these kinds of things privately to Danielle Fischel, do you think that he was being completely innocent in the decisions he was making as to what kind of programming my generation was exposed to growing up publicly? Or is it possible that actually a lot of what we were getting via TV shows, in terms of stories, in terms of advertising, a lot of that was influenced by what these kinds of executives, executives just like the ones she's talking about on this podcast, Pod Meets World, is it possible that maybe, just maybe, that desire to mark a day and a month on the calendar when this gal was going to turn 18, might also influence what they try to normalize and what barriers they try and erode more broadly across the culture. 
do we understand that certain things being illegal, first and foremost, has to do with culturally what is considered appropriate or not appropriate, what is considered to be moral or immoral. Do we understand that back in the 90s, back in the 80s, we had decisions being made as to how young people were being portrayed on TV and in various other media that reflected not just what the current cultural values were, but also something of an aspiration on the part of executives and studios and stations for what the culture would accept, what the culture would tolerate and ultimately make legal. Do we understand that that's actually playing out right now too, but it's more aggressive along certain lines than what many of us ever thought it would be? Do we understand that behind the scenes, you have creepy executives still, right? You don't stop having creepy executives. All it takes is somebody is good at getting results, making money, or they have the right family connections. You know, the executive is delivering fame and fortune for the studio or for the investors or for these stars, giving the public what they want, but then also slowly but surely affecting what the public wants, cultivating culture. Do we understand that to some extent here, a 14, 15, 16-year-old actress being put forward for audiences coast to coast to look at and gawk at and enjoy, do we understand that that has slowly but surely marched forward year over year, decade after decade for the past 30, 40 years plus? Think back with me to our talk of Numbers 33. And what I asked you to imagine, if you grew up in the same place your whole life, I asked you to imagine what if you had grown up moving every couple of years or every so often. You'd just pack up and move, pack up and move. But then remember what I was saying about imagining your whole tribe, your whole clan, not just your family, but your whole people, your whole nation would pack up and move along with you every so often. That's kind of like what has happened over the last 30, 40 years culturally, thanks to media, thanks to television programming and movies and music and video games and the rest. We pack up and we move and we pack up and we move. And now this is the new thing. And now everybody wants to watch this. And now everybody's talking about that. And now everybody's reading such and such. And now everybody's watching this other thing. And now our mindset is shifting. And now we're normalizing this. And now we're stigmatizing that. And now we're rethinking certain laws so that people who are doing the programming, not only of TV shows, but also of the viewing public, can get what they want. And in the meantime, just their pursuit of it, just their pursuit of what they want is satisfying to them. So this executive, he says what he says to Danielle Fischel about having a day and a month and a year marked on his calendar for when she's going to turn 18. His telling her that is already his crossing a line. 
the father being in the picture should have stepped in at that point and said, all right, you're done. I don't care what the contract is. This is a breach of contract. Either this executive gets fired or I'm getting you out of this business. That's what the father should have done if he was in the picture. But then what also was being normalized in the 90s vis-a-vis the sitcoms that were programmed and that were, by extension, programming the general public, the viewing public at home. Fathers were being presented time and again as clueless, untrustworthy, selfish, frivolous, immature, buffoons. And so, oh, of course, these kids have got to figure it out for themselves. But then who is writing the script about these fathers? Who is greenlighting or else canceling shows? Executives? Studio heads? Who maybe occasionally do come across fathers who step in and say, what did you just say to my daughter? All right, that's it. We're going. We're done. Nope. Nope. She's not going to work for you anymore. No. Something to think about. This is something for us to consider. Also, just briefly, just briefly, I know this is uncomfortable. I know it's an uncomfortable topic generally, but we have to realize that this is mechanically what's going on as we're building culture, as we're seeing culture shift and change. Danielle Fischel was 12 years old when she joined the cast of Boy Meets World as Topanga. She was already evaluated and assessed along certain lines, certain lines regarding desirability at 12. If she didn't get comments until 14, 15, 16 years old, indicating sexual interest from male executives, producers, directors, various other powerful people overseeing this show, if she didn't get comments until a few years later, it doesn't mean she wasn't already being assessed, sized up for how attractive, how appealing, how interesting she would be to the wider American public at 12. In short, in sum, she was put forward, she was put on the screen because it was expected that if this show really does well, if it succeeds and if we get lots of seasons out of it, she is going to be interesting to lots of young men and lots of adult men as she gets older, as she is on this show. Plain and simple, period. That is how these people were already sizing her up. And I guarantee you, she wasn't the only one who tried out. It's not as though they just chose at random a name from a list. No, they looked at her, they sized her up, they said, she'll do at 12. And they kept her on. Why? Because she was continuing to develop and grow before all of our eyes. And we should understand a couple things. One, there are certain promotions on a global scale right now trying to dissolve any kind of, first and foremost, social or cultural, but then secondarily, legal barrier to adults having relations with children. This is being promoted under the claim, the specious claim, that children are sexual beings from birth and therefore it is their human right to engage in sexual activity. Therefore, it is their human right to engage in consensual relations with not just other children, but also with adults. We need to understand that 
if we are even given some pause about that, when we find out, when we say, well, I don't know, you know, how much of our thinking and reasoning has been conditioned by decades of television programming, shepherded by, guided by, funded by, overseen by executives just like the one Danielle Fischel is describing. Now, the whole Me Too movement, interestingly, has made it all about consent, 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 consent. But then what's the next thing? What are they going to get you with? Once you have bought into that being the decisive factor, consent, 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 consent. The next thing they're going to say is, well, yeah, but can't kids consent? Can't children consent? They're already pushing it with transgenderism. The reason they're pushing it with transgenderism is because they want you to accept. They want you to agree that children can consent to making decisions that adults who are not their parents talk them into regarding their sexuality. And you know what? At the end of the day, this is not a new thing. I hate to break it to you. This is not a new thing. This is actually a very old thing. This is a very common thing throughout history. The exception, the specialness, the new thing, if you will, has been that Christian civilization, Western civilization, protected children. For 2,000 years, Christians have protected children. And you can say, oh, but what about Catholic priests? And what about this or that? scandal. And I'll say, I'm not going to deny the capacity of Christian individuals to sin. I'm not going to deny the capacity of individuals and institutions that portray themselves as Christian to sin. But it wouldn't even be regarded as a sin if not for Christian morality. That's what so many people miss. That we even start with the presumption that this or that is wrong is a mark of our Christian civilization, our Christian ethos, our Christian cultural norms, which a lot of people around the world are trying to abolish. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's a fact that Christian faith, Christian philosophy, Christian culture has protected vulnerable children who were thrown out, discarded, abandoned, abused, for 2,000 years. Back in Roman days, it was common for unwanted children to just be exposed to the elements and abandoned. And Christians started the first orphanages, taking in these children, adopting them, raising them, caring for them. But the Greeks and the Romans had no special squeamishness about sexual relationships between adults and children, either men and boys or men and young girls. Lots of civilizations, lots of cultures, lots of peoples throughout history have said, oh yeah, you know what? If you take some slaves, you can make the boys into eunuchs and you can graft all of these young women into being servants. And then whatever you do with your servant girls, your young maidens, whatever you do with your slave girls, well, that's your business. They're your property. Do whatever you want. It's been a very Christian idea that, you know, the ideal, the standard is to not abuse people, period. Even if you have power over them, you're not going to abuse them. And as a matter of fact, it's a very biblical thing, Old Testament and New Testament, that even if somebody has power over their slave or employee, 
or somebody who's poorer and more vulnerable in the community, like a widow or an orphan, even if we recognize that there's a power imbalance, maybe all the more if we recognize that there's a power imbalance, Christian culture speaks into that and says, hey, you really shouldn't talk to her that way. You really shouldn't treat him that way. You really shouldn't do that. In fact, you're neglecting your responsibility over here and you're abusing this person right there and you need to stop it. That's been a hallmark of Christian culture, Christian civilization for 2,000 years. And then even before that, in the law of Moses, there's a lot of protection for people who otherwise, very commonly, very typically, would have been casually used, abused, and discarded at the will and whim of whoever was the strongest. In the law of Moses, you've got God saying, actually, I'm the strongest. And I say, this is how to treat this person. It's not to say that there was no slavery. There was slavery. But you had to treat your slaves with fairness and with a certain decency, according to God. God's standard of fairness, God's standard of decency. If you say, well, I don't like his standard. Watch out, right? Watch out. Because the next thing is, whoever has presented themselves, humanly speaking, as stronger than you, decides what is fair and what is decent. And next thing you know, you've got some male executive making lewd advances at 16-year-old Danielle Fischel. Or the next thing you know, you've got the UN adopting resolutions saying that we need to decriminalize, destigmatize pedophilia around the world. Watch out. You throw out God's standard, and then it's a free-for-all. Then it's just an arm wrestling match. Whoever's the strongest, whoever's the wealthiest, whoever's got the institutional power, they get to decide. They say. And if you're a father, even here in the U.S., we've got Joe Biden saying there is no such thing as other people's children. That's what you get. That's what you get. You get creepers smelling little girl's hair publicly in front of all the cameras because, hey, it's okay. I'll just have the corporate media put out some news reports that pretend to inform you, pretend to tell you objectively, but actually really are just propagandizing and brainwashing you and normalizing this and excusing it if they have to even address it at all. It's okay. I'll have Walt Disney Company put out more and more media that normalizes what I want to do increasingly openly. There is no such thing as other people's kids. Is a dangerous, dangerous remark. That alone should have him impeached and removed from office. The hair smelling alone should have him impeached and removed from office. It's extraordinarily creepy. Hands off other people's wives and daughters and sisters and mothers. Knock it off. Creepy, creepy old man Joe Biden. But again, I say it's not a new thing. It's actually a very old thing. Make the boys into eunuchs and throw the young ladies into harems for the wealthiest, most powerful men. And then whatever they do, whatever they do is their business, butt out. Keep your head down. Don't ask questions. Don't make trouble. As far as these people are concerned, that's what we should go back to. And we need to understand that that's the or else. They want to find fault with Christianity and Christians and conservatives all day, every day. But they don't ever tell you the or else. They don't ever tell you the or what that you're going to, this brave new world that they have in store for you once you have cleared out the Christians and the conservatives. They don't tell you that part. Why? Because you wouldn't like it, because you wouldn't go along with them if they did. The woman Folly 
is seductive. She's beautiful. She knows nothing. And the people who are simple, who accept her invitation to eat with her, stolen bread, eaten in secret, they don't realize her house goes down to Sheol. Listen to the woman, wisdom. And you know what? I'll be the first to admit to those new atheist types, the agnostic types, the anti-Christian, neo-pagan types, the cultural Marxists, I'll be the first to admit, you know what? There's a lot that a close reading of God's word, strictly speaking, would permit that is prohibited right now. A lot of that is because we take some liberties and use our own discretion, and we don't always follow strictly the letter of the law. In fact, as Christians, we would say we're not under the law, we have liberty, but then we're also factoring in, we're also considering what Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. And so historically, in the cultivation of political theology, the formation of a Christian ethic with regards to making laws, humanly speaking, enforcing and interpreting laws, humanly speaking, very often that is the question at the end of the day. Okay, yes, this may be lawful, but is it beneficial? And then sometimes people will say, all right, I don't think this is beneficial, so we're going to make it against the law, humanly speaking. When we come to things like that, I am okay with us debating what God hasn't prohibited, strictly speaking. I'm okay with debating it. All right, and let's kick it back and forth. Is it really beneficial or not beneficial? Is this really lawful or unlawful? Let's talk about that. But all the while we're talking about that, understand that there are predatory people. There are people who are lawless and they don't want to be told no on anything, regardless how they would harm people. If they got what they wanted, they would be content. They would be content to harm other people so long as at the end of the day, they were pleased. We have to protect our children from predators. We must. And for that matter, insofar as I would even just barely remotely agree with what Joe Biden said about there's no such thing as other people's children. Yeah. You know what? That's a great point. I'm going to protect other people's children from predators like you too. How about that? I'll protect other people's children from predators like you too. Great point. In other news, the Atlantic accidentally lets the truth slip. Quote, women are different down to the cellular level. End quote. Some reporting by Planet Moron from the day before yesterday over at Not To Be. Briefly, just briefly, we won't camp out on this one for a long time. I want to share a quote highlighted by Not To Be, quoting author Rose George. You can access this article through MSN, by the way, if you don't want to do the paywall thing. Quote, there's also the fact that some scientists still project findings from research on men onto women, seeming not to realize that women aren't just small men. Women are different down to the cellular level, meaning that many of our immune responses, experiences of pain and symptoms, including, for instance, those that accompany a heart attack, may be different from men's. A confident assertion that sex isn't solely biological might surprise scientists who understand sex to be determined by chromosomes and anatomy. I found author Clancy's preference for terms such as people who menstruate over women and girls troubling too, in a book that seems intended to argue for the importance of studying the biology of females and correcting a history that ignored the uniqueness of their medical experiences as women and girls. Now, there's no mention here, as Planet Moron over at Not The Bee points out, there's no mention of trans, but what is said here? There's some reason to find fault 
with defining biological females as women who menstruate. There is something very perverse about referring to women as people who menstruate, but then you're actually not meaning just the women women. You're meaning the men women wouldn't be included in the people who menstruate thing, but why not just refer to these as women? Why not refer to women as women and call liars liars? No, I don't want to hear about your preferred pronouns. No, I'm not going to use your preferred pronouns. No, you are not a woman. If you were born with male anatomy, if you were born with an X and a Y chromosome in your 23rd, if you're calling yourself a woman, you're a liar. Your preferred pronoun is clearly liar, lying liar. But this is interesting. It's interesting that the Atlantic is running this. It's also interesting that you have feminists increasingly changing their tune and where for decades they were saying, well, there's no real meaningful difference between men and women in terms of what roles in society they can serve in, what functions in a corporation or in a community or in a nation they should occupy or fulfill. Now, all of a sudden, you've got feminists saying, wait, 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 you're trying to erase women. No, no, you feminists for decades have been erasing women, denigrating what it means for a woman to be a wife who submits to her husband, denigrating what it means for a woman to be a mother who loves and takes care of her children. You, you, you are the ones who have been erasing women. I mean, even just the fact that there are separate leagues for men in sports and women in sports, we're finding if anybody was unclear on why you have separate leagues, we're finding increasingly anytime a man who's even a mediocre athlete identifies as a woman and participates and competes in women's sports, he dominates. And you can say, ah, but Garrett, we shouldn't point out that fact. No, we should actually, because it gets to at least part of one dimension of, there are many, but one dimension of why the husband is supposed to be the head of his wife, why the wife is supposed to submit to her husband in everything as unto the Lord. We get at one dimension of why men are supposed to be protectors and they're supposed to be the ones going off to fight in war why they're the ones who are supposed to serve in law enforcement, why women are not supposed to and shouldn't, why a woman taking up the uniform of the armed services and becoming a rifleman, a riflewoman, I suppose, as the case may be, is inappropriate. It doesn't fit. It does not pertain to her to be the one going out and fighting against the strongest, toughest, most aggressive, most deadly, most ruthless of your nation's enemies. She can't even keep up with the most mediocre of athletes in a sport, no matter how hard she trains. Why would we put her on the front lines of a battle? It's madness. It's folly. She should be home raising children. She should be home keeping the house, being the woman wisdom, not loud, knowing nothing, going off to fight the country's wars, or I should say lose the country's wars. She shouldn't be going into law enforcement. No offense, but she shouldn't be going into law enforcement. She shouldn't be going and trying to arrest 
detain, order around men in the community who are eh, questionable at best for their following of orders peaceably. No, that should be the biggest, toughest, strongest, most disciplined, most self-controlled, most virtuous of men in the community who are law enforcement, not women, not women. But then I believe that this is actually also of a piece with the same kind of predatory behavior and social conditioning that right now is trying to dissolve the distinction between adults and children. I think that a lot of women were told they needed to prove that they were able that they they were able to protect themselves. They were able to stand up for themselves. Why? Because once we convinced everybody that uh, they can protect themselves, the woman can protect herself. She can speak up for herself. Once we convinced everybody of that, what did the fathers and the husbands do? What did the brothers do? They checked out and they said, oh, well, you know, I don't want to offend her. And then what did the predators do? They swooped in because they knew all along that it was a lie. It was just a way of trying to get the young women alone so they could prey on them. And again, this is why Christian civilization is so exceptional because Christian civilization has historically tried to protect women, encouraging, demanding of men to respect and provide for and protect women because they need to be. And yes, you know what? We need women to be women. We do. We really need women to not be men if we're even to survive as a species. But even on an individual level, we need women to be women. We need women to be feminine. It's needed. It's necessary. It's by God's design. If you accept the whole nonsense train of the left and the godless, you'll say, well, it's all accidental anyways. Anything can be anything. That's what evolution would have you believe. Anything can be anything. Anyone can be anything they want to be. Who are you to say no? God has written it in your DNA. As the Atlantic article is pointing out, at a cellular level, everything, everything in your genetic code is interpreted differently based on that 23rd chromosome, whether it's an X and an X or it's an X and a Y. And that's by God's design. That's by God's design. He is the one to tell you, oh, no, you can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. No, this is supposed to be for men. No, this is supposed to be for women. It's an abomination for a woman to wear that which pertains to a man, for a man to wear that which pertains to a woman. It's an abomination. And there are real and significant consequences to making war on that, to rebelling against that. There are real, significant, pervasive multifaceted consequences, which we are seeing left, right, and center. We're seeing all over American society right now and all over the world. As this is being exported from America to other countries, a great deal of damage is being done to men, women, and children, to whole peoples and nations, because we're not honoring God in relation to our humanity. Let's talk about a related subject a article, a report published by Barbara Ortute with the AP. I saw it published at the Billings Gazette. The title tells us just about everything we need to know about it. Twitter is most dangerous major social media platform for LGBTQ plus users, according to GLAAD. 
San Francisco, all major social media platforms do poorly at protecting LGBTQ plus users from hate speech and harassment, especially those who are transgender, non-binary, or gender non-conforming. The advocacy group GLAAD said in a new report, but Twitter is the worst. Of course it's the worst because Elon Musk owns it. Of course it's the worst because free speech, right? Of course, right. In its annual social media safety index, GLAAD gave Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter low or failing scores, saying the platforms don't do enough to keep their users safe. That said, most improved from a year ago. Twitter, which was acquired by Tesla CEO Elon Musk last October, was the only exception. GLAAD gave a scorecard released Thursday, calling it the most dangerous platform for LGBTQ people, and the only one that saw its scores decline from last year from 45% a year ago to 33%. Twitter's communication staff was eradicated. Oh, wow, eradicated. What a journalistic word. Eradicated. Oh, they were eradicated. Do you mean fired? Do do you mean downsized? Do you mean terminated? Do you mean let go? No, eradicated. Yeah, he he came through with those special flamethrowers that he developed, and he just torched him. Didn't fire him but literally fired them. (sighs) After Musk took over the company, Twitter apparently became very, very dangerous for LGBTQ people, which is to say this is all being spun up to portray Elon Musk as a bigot with regards to people who are sexual deviants. He's a bigot against homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered people, queers, Pedophiles, how dare he, right? How dare he allow the general public to speak freely and criticize and disagree and say, leave our kids alone? How dare he? It's dangerous, hateful. You know, just because you wicked degenerates hate what he's saying, that doesn't mean that what he's saying is hateful. Just because you hate what he's letting other people say, that doesn't mean that that is hate speech. It doesn't. Or else it's hate speech for you to criticize the people who are criticizing your lifestyle, your sexual identity, your gender identity, your sexual deviance, your sexual immorality. How is it possible that these people get away with calling hate speech if I criticize their being sexually immoral, if I call them to repentance of it, if I tell them to stop preying on children, how is that considered hate speech, but it's not considered hate speech when they criticize my calling them to repentance? They hate me calling them to repentance. How is it not hate speech either way? We all hate certain things. We all love certain things. What we hate is what we reject and what we loathe and despise, what we regard as evil. We all clearly have some kind of a standard of what is good and evil. It's just a question of, does your standard, does my standard adhere to objective reality? The man who claims to be a woman, but has XY chromosomes all throughout his body, all the cells in his body are influenced and interpreted by the XY, he's a liar, but he hates me calling him a liar. So why is that not hate speech? And oh, by the way, isn't it interesting? I am not on Twitter. And I bring this up because for Twitter being such a unsafe place, it's clearly protected from me. But then 
look at it the other direction. Reframe your perspective here and realize Twitter is not a safe place for me because I can't even post on there. I can't even log in and look at other people's content on there because about 15, 16 months ago, I tweeted back to Chris Jolly Hale from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, with all due respect at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. I tweeted back because he was calling for the removal and replacement of Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, because she had the temerity to ask Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Supreme Court nominee, put forward by the Biden administration, what is a woman? He said, with all due respect, Marsha Blackburn should be removed and replaced by the people of Tennessee. And I said, with all due respect, at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. And now I am barred from the public square. As far as Twitter is concerned, I have to rely on other people embedding tweets. Why? Because somebody saw what I tweeted and they hated it. And they demanded it get deleted and that I repent and I not say anything like that anymore. And so they threw some nonsense community standard that had nothing whatsoever to do with the tweeting question. They threw that at me and said I had violated community standards. Glad is full of it. We all have to hate certain things. We all should hate what we believe to be evil and wicked and wrong and unjust. And they definitely have hate for what they claim to be evil. What they claim is wrong and unjust and unfair, they definitely have hate and they speak it. In fact, as a matter of fact, they hate that Elon Musk owns Twitter now. Clearly, the... AP writer here, I won't dare call her a journalist, but Barbara Ortute hates Elon Musk's Twitter, clearly. You don't use words like eradicate to describe his firing or terminating the employment of people in the communications department, unless you hate his owning Twitter. More to the point, I would go so far as to say, the way that the left is relating to Elon Musk generally, I would say they hate him, but they at least hate what he stands for. And if that's okay for them to hate what he stands for and to hate what it is that he's saying and hate what it is that he's allowing other people to say, if that's okay, well then what's your objection? Let's get back to the main topic instead of you being manipulative. The or else is really important here, but they don't want to talk about the or else. In other news, Back to not the bee. Harris Rigby reports, as of the day before yesterday, Australian government threatens Elon Musk with $475,000 a day fine if he doesn't stop people's feelings from being hurt on Twitter. Now, of course, that's a spun up headline, but when you really boil it down, that's what it amounts to. The Washington Post has a tweet here that's embedded in the reporting from Harris Rigby. The Washington Post tweet reads as follows. Quote, Australia has ordered Twitter to explain what it is doing to tackle online hate, saying there had been a sharp increase in, quote, toxicity and hate, end quote, since Elon Musk took over the company last year. Now, again, 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 what we need to understand here is this is partiality. This is dishonest. This is highly manipulative. The Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, big time proponent of the left and leftist causes, the Washington Post is putting it all on Elon Musk and conservatives in particular who would be allowed to speak freely 
and ask questions that the left doesn't want having asked, say things that the left doesn't want being said. The left is totalitarian, and what they hate is individuals expressing what the left doesn't want you to think and doesn't want you to say and doesn't want you to ask. The left hates you and I having the freedom to double-check their math. They hate us having the freedom to disagree and to debate and possibly persuade other people to disempower these predators. Plain and simple. There's been a sharp increase in toxicity and hate. How do you measure that? How do you quantify that? I think what you really mean is you're more hateful. You hate what other people are being allowed to say in many cases on Twitter. That's what you really mean. And so, yes, you want an explanation. What you really want isn't an explanation. Any more than the people who say when they're trying to promote CRT, we need to have a conversation about race in America. Those people, they don't mean we need to have a conversation. They don't want an explanation. What they mean by conversation is they do all the talking. And then at the end of the discussion, you say mea culpa, mea culpa. At the end of the conversation, you are re-educated and you repeat after them because otherwise they'll destroy you. They'll wreck your life. Who's the hateful bigot here? The person who says, well, wait a second, actually, I think that's not quite right. And here's what the stats are. Here's what the science actually says. I mean, what? The Atlantic article from the feminist objecting to women being described as people who menstruate? Is she part of that increase in toxicity and hate on Twitter? Surely not. Going back to the Daily Wire and another piece from Katie Jerkovich, this one about J.K. Rowling and the people who are pushing this term cis to describe non-trans people. J.K. Rowling goes viral with message to those pushing people to use cis after Musk labels it a slur. Famed Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling went viral after she posted a message to those pushing the word cis as a term to describe people who identify and gender correspond with their biological sex. Rowling, who has faced numerous attacks from leftist activists for her support of biological women, which is to say women, actual women, tweeted on Wednesday, cis is ideological language that signifies belief in the unfalsifiable concept of gender identity. Quote, you have a perfect right to believe in unprovable essences that may or may not match the sexed body, but the rest of us have a right to disagree and to refuse to adopt your jargon. Rowling tweeted, her post has since gone viral with more than 4.5 million views and counting. In a second tweet, she torched a trans activist who told her, quote, you as a cis woman have every right to disagree with me, cis man and other cis women, along with trans men and trans women. J.K. Rowling's reply was just type repent heretic, fewer characters, and it'll have exactly the same effect on me. Now let's just stop. Let's pause. Let's back up a little bit. Elon Musk announced publicly that they were going to clamp down on trans activists harassing people who are critical of trans activism with this term cis or variations on the same sissy, for instance, that's harassment. It's not going to be tolerated. No. And so then there's this big uproar. Oh, how dare you? How dare you try and control our language? And it's like, Hey, wait a second. Actually back up. You are demanding that you be allowed to control people's language when you insist on being referred to by your preferred pronouns. You're insisting on controlling people's language. Maybe 
what's at issue here is not, first and foremost, who gets to say what, but rather the premise of who ultimately is in control, who has authority. The problem here is one of authority, which is to say, too, J.K. Rowling's observation that this is shorthand, repent heretic, (laughs) that observation, it needs unpacked a bit. And I would love to do a fuller, broader podcast episode about this, but let me just briefly delve into Alistair Moffat's Scotland, a history from earliest times, and how Alistair Moffat points out that King James VI and I, that King James that we know the King James version of the Bible from, that King James whose nickname at court was Queen James because he was a homosexual, he was a bisexual, that King James is arguably to blame for the rise in witch hunting furor in the British Isles, and then subsequently in the colonies in America. He wrote at length about demonology and about witchcraft, at length, studying, analyzing, and then pointing the finger as something like a proto-how to be an anti-racist. In some sense, you could say witch hunting was cancel culture and the woke mind virus before it was cool. Back when you couldn't really have it known broadly that you were a homosexual or a bisexual, what was the trick that King James Sixth and First pulled? Let's talk about demons. Let's talk about witches. Yeah, get the witches. Get the demons out of our society. And while everybody was all whipped into a frenzy, what were they not tackling? What were they not dealing with? His sins, right? The left does the exact same thing today. And you could say, well, but Garrett, I think you're confusing our categories here. And that's not quite how these things work. Yeah, but when we're dealing with people who are given over to a reprobate mind, who are rebellious generally, who are wicked and sinful generally, you can't isolate what they're doing with their physical bodies in a sexual way from how their mind approaches and tackles problems more generally. It's a broader problem. It's a more general problem. And while they're at it, right, while they're at doing whatever they please, maybe especially all the more rather than less, if God has said not to, why not, right? Why not try and see how many people you can destroy so as to deflect attention away from your own sins, your own wickedness, your own vileness, your own depravity, There's something really sick and twisted about this idea of the homosexuals and bisexuals and transgendered people being allowed to decide who is going to be destroyed next. There's something perverse and twisted about them always wanting to find new heretics to burn at the stake, so to speak. It's a witch hunt. Cancel culture, what the woke have done in the West, both online and in real life, What they have done is a continuation of the mindset of the old witch trials. And it actually has a lot in common in terms of behind the scenes and not even behind the scenes, what the choices have been in terms of sexuality. Actually, carrying this thought forward a little bit, I would say that this is very typical all the way back to the garden and the original sin. 
all the way back to when God confronts Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden, what is the response from Adam? This woman you gave me, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate. What's the response from the woman? The serpent. It's a deflection. It's a, oh, what's that over there? It's actually their fault. You know, it's, it's, actually, you know, it's, it's, this is really your fault, God. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. People are remarkably consistent. This is also why Jesus says, why do you say to your brother, you have a speck in your eye when you have a plank in your own eye? First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother′s eye. And now the left will say, and they have been saying for some time, well, that′s Christians. That′s conservatives to a T. And it′s like, no, no, no. Actually, that′s you guys, right? That′s you guys. You maybe get figured out whether you're a man or a woman, according to God. Get that right, and then you can maybe possibly help us work on some of our finer points of being correct. How about you work on not being a homosexual because God says that's abominable? How about you work on not wearing that which pertains to a man if you're a woman or not wearing that which pertains to a woman if you're a man? How about you get that straight because God says that's abominable? Then... I'll be interested in you helping me with the speck in my own eye. Conservatives have for far too long just accepted as a matter of course and internalized as a matter of course that the left calls us hypocrites. No, no, they're the hypocrites. They're the ones play acting. They're pretending that they really care about what's right and what's fair and loving. No, no, it's all about self-love. Actually, that's the common denominator is they love themselves too much. And if you tell them that they've sinned against other people, they're in the process of sinning against other people, they're in the process of sinning against God, they're sinning against the truth. If you tell them that and you tell them to repent because you actually care for them, you actually love them, you're concerned about them destroying themselves before your very eyes and destroying other people left and right, they say, oh, that's hateful. Why? Not because they're actually all that concerned about hate, but because they love themselves so much compared with the way that they like to love themselves you telling them to deny anything that they want, to hold back or restrain themselves or moderate themselves in any way from going and getting what they want, that would be hate. And so you must hate them if you would tell them that they can't have something that they want. You must hate them compared with how much they love themselves. And the irony is actually, if we as Christians and conservatives recognize that some of how we take care of ourselves and our wives and our children, in my case as a man, as a husband and a father, part of how we do that is by sometimes saying, no, no, we can't. No, that wouldn't be good. No, let's not play with that. No, that's dangerous. No, I don't want you to go there. No, that's too risky. No, let's do it this other way. That would be wiser, more beneficial, less hazardous to your health or safety. When that's the way that we love ourselves and our wives and our children, men, we actually are loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. If we say, even-handedly, hey, this thing you are doing is not good and you should not do that thing because it's destroying you. But what does Proverbs say? If you correct a fool, he will hate you for it. You correct a wise man and he'll love you for it. You correct a fool and he will hate you for it. Jesus says, actually, don't cast your pearls before swine. If the left online and in real life 
is not to a T characterized by that, then I don't know who would be. I, I don't know who in our context more perfectly typifies generally as a category the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, if not the left. Now, of course, you can have supposedly conservative people who are as bad or worse. Yep. Yep. Sure. But then again, let's talk about percentages. Let's talk about ratios. Let's talk about odds. Let's talk about what is typical and characteristic. Let's talk about rules and exceptions and what's consistent with principles and line of descent as far as ideas go. As an aside, I'll say it's unfortunate that J.K. Rowling is saying publicly, repent heretic would have no effect. You know, maybe she just means she's not going to repent and she's not a heretic with regards to what it is that she's being told she's departed from. I'm, you know, that orthodoxy, right? Orthodoxy is now you have to affirm that gender and sexuality are completely arbitrary, totally autonomous. You are your own universe. Objective reality is whatever you want it to be. But actually what is necessary here is that heretics repent. It's just that the left thinks the conservatives and the Christians are the heretics. But like Tom Holland says in Dominion, even the way that they're approaching these issues and they're trying to promote these ideas throughout the world is very evangelistic. It is a cultural artifact of the Christian West. It's just been stripped of its biblical content in the mainstay. And then every now and then, when you get into a conversation about theology in relation to human sexuality today, you will have the left try. Like they'll try to reach for a biblical excuse, but it's always sloppy. It's always slapdash. It's always fast and loose. And what happens if they're corrected on that? And their handling of the scripture is to twist it. And they're told that. What do they call that as well? They call that hate speech as well. They'll say, well, you're not being very Christ-like. Well, no, actually, this is exactly how Christ replied to those who twisted scripture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He corrected them, rebuked them, sometimes gently, sometimes indirectly, but more often, if they were supposed to be the teachers, if they were putting themselves forward as the authorities on God's word, he was very stern, very direct, very blunt. Occasionally, he taught in parables. So that is to say, it's okay sometimes to be indirect, but it's also very okay to be very blunt at times. And that is to say, at a certain point, we're going to have to recognize that this is a religious war. The left has their new religion of woke, which at root is just cultural Marxism. It's just Marxism. It's just communism. That's the religion to the left. And conservatives, by and large, if we're honest, we have to embrace the Christian roots of our political philosophy. Now, it gets a little bit confused at times. If you go back in history and you look at who the conservatives were, let's say, when there was monarchy, in some sense, it's relative. What are you conserving? Right? And that's the thing we have to figure out. We have to grapple with that. If we're going to be unified or effective, if we're going to get anything accomplished, we have to figure out what it is that we're actually conserving and why. And whether all that we would conserve is worth conserving, we're going to have to pick our battles to some extent, find the right hills to die on. But if you go back in time, the Whig Party and the Tory Party 
in the British Isles in the United Kingdom, came down to your Covenanters on the one hand and your Royalists on the other hand. It came down to your Protestant Presbyterians on the one hand and your primarily largely Roman Catholic monarchists on the other hand. It came down to what some would say were the conservatives who were for the divine right of kings on the one hand and what others would say were the liberals on the other hand. But then I would just really challenge that. Look at the kinds of arguments being made by Edmund Burke. The kinds of arguments have to do with going back and back and back and back and recognizing that we have rights as Englishmen. If you're English, you have rights as an Englishman. Where do those rights come from? Where does this idea that you can tell the king, no, that's wrong. No, that's wicked. No, that's evil. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from clergy, ministers, Presbyterians, extrapolating from the plurality of elders and from the whole counsel of God, including how God dealt with kings in the Old Testament. Saul, for instance, having the kingdom taken away from him, not getting a blank check from God to be able to declare right and righteous and good and lawful whatever Saul did, whatever Saul ordered others to do. God takes the kingdom away from Saul and he gives it to David. And that's almost all you need to know to reject this idea of the divine right of kings. And so in some sense, to call ourselves conservatives demands we know what we're conserving to be able to decide whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. If you're conserving a bad status quo, well, then you wouldn't want to be a conservative, would you? If you're for progress, like C.S. Lewis said, we should be for progress, that means you're going down the right road. But if you're going down the wrong road, the most progressive man is the one who turns around soonest. For our last story or article or item to discuss in this episode, very fittingly, I think, given the rest of what we've been talking about, I want to share with you Live Not by Lies by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, according to Edward E. Erickson Jr. and Daniel J. Mahoney in the Solzhenitsyn Reader, quote, on the day Solzhenitsyn was arrested, February 12th. 1974, he released the text of Live Not by Lies. The next day, he was exiled to the West, where he received a hero's welcome. This moment marks the peak of his fame. Solzhenitsyn equates lies with ideology, the illusion that human nature and society can be reshaped to predetermined specifications. And his last word before leaving his homeland urges Soviet citizens as individuals to refrain from cooperating with the regime's lies. Even the most timid can take the least demanding step towards spiritual independence. If many march together on this path of passive resistance, the whole inhuman system will totter and collapse. Now, without further ado, let me read for you this essay by Solzhenitsyn. Quote, There was a time when we dared not rustle a whisper, but now we write and read samizdat and congregating in the smoking rooms of research institutes heartily complain to each other of all they are muddling up of all they are dragging us into. There's that unnecessary bravado around our ventures into space against the backdrop of ruin and poverty at home and the buttressing of distant savage regimes and the kindling of civil wars and the ill-thought-out cultivation of Mao Zedong at our expense to boot. In the end, we'll be the ones sent out against him and we'll have to go. What other option will there be? And they put whomever they want on trial and brand the healthy as mentally ill 
And it is always they, while we are helpless. We are approaching the brink. Already a universal spiritual demise is upon us. A physical one is about to flare up and engulf us and our children while we continue to smile sheepishly and babble. But what can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. We have so hopelessly seated our humanity that for the modest handouts of today, we are ready to surrender up all principles, our soul, all the labors of our ancestors, all the prospects of our descendants, anything to avoid disrupting our meager existence. We've lost our strength, our pride, our passion. We do not even fear a common nuclear death. Do not fear a third world war. Perhaps we'll hide away in some crevice, but fear only to take a civic stance. We hope only not to stray from the herd, not to set out on our own and risk suddenly having to make do without the white bread, the hot water heater, a Moscow residency permit. We've internalized well the lessons drummed into us by the state. We are forever content and comfortable with its premise. We cannot escape the environment, the social conditions. They shape us. Being determines consciousness. What have we to do with this? We can do nothing, but we can do everything. Even if we comfort and lie to ourselves that this is not so, it is not they who are guilty of everything, but we ourselves, only we. Some will counter, but really, there's nothing to be done. Our mouths are gagged. No one listens to us. No one asks us, how can we make them listen to us? To make them reconsider is possible. The natural thing would be simply not to re-elect them, but there are no re-elections in our country. In the West, they have strikes, protest marches, but we are too cowed, too scared. How does one just give up one's job, just go out onto the street? All the other fateful means resorted to over the last century of Russia's bitter history are even less fitting for us today. True, let's not fall back on them. Today, when all the axes have hewn what they hacked, when all that was sown has borne fruit, we can see how lost, how drugged were those conceited youths who sought through terror, bloody uprising, and civil war to make the country just and content. No, thank you, fathers of enlightenment. We now know that the vileness of the means begets the vileness of the result. Let our hands be clean. So has the circle closed? So is there indeed no way out? So the only thing left to do is wait inertly? What if something just happens by itself? But it will never come unstuck by itself if we all every day continue to acknowledge, glorify, and strengthen it. If we do not at the least recoil from its most vulnerable point, from lies. When violence bursts onto the peaceful human condition, its face is flush with self-assurance. It displays on its banner and proclaims, I am violence. Make way, step aside. I will crush you. But violence ages swiftly. A few years pass and it is no longer sure of itself. To prop itself up, to appear decent, it will, without fail, call forth its ally, lies. For violence has nothing to cover itself with but lies, and lies can only persist through violence. And it is not every day, and not on every shoulder, that violence brings down its heavy hand. It demands of us only a submission to lies, a daily participation in deceit, and this suffices as our fealty. 
And therein we find, neglected by us, the simplest, the most accessible key to our liberation, a personal non-participation in lies. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule hold not through me. And this is the way to break out of their imaginary encirclement of our inertness, the easiest way for us and the most devastating for the lies. For when people renounce lies, lies simply cease to exist. Like parasites, they can only survive when attached to a person. We are not called upon to step out onto the square and shout out the truth to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We are not ready. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. This is the way then. The easiest and most accessible for us, given our deep-seated organic cowardice. Much easier then. It's scary even to utter the word civil disobedience. Alagandi. Our way must be never knowingly support lies. Having understood where the lies begin, and many see this line differently, step back from the gangrenous edge. Let us not glue back the flaking scales of the ideology, not gather back its crumbling bones, nor patch together its decomposing garb, and we will be amazed how swiftly and helplessly the lies will fall away, and that which is destined to be naked will be exposed as such to the world. And thus, overcoming our temerity, let each man choose. Will he remain a witting servant of the lies, needless to say, not due to natural predisposition, but in order to provide a living for the family to rear the children in the spirit of lies? Or has the time come for him to stand straight as an honest man, worthy of the respect of his children and contemporaries? And from that day onward, he will not write, sign, nor publish in any way a single line distorting so far as he can see the truth will not utter such a line in private or in public conversation, nor read it from a crib sheet, nor speak it in the role of educator, canvasser, teacher, actor, will not in painting, sculpture, photograph, technology, or music depict, support, or broadcast a single false thought, a single distortion of the truth as he discerns it, will not cite in writing or in speech a single guiding quote for gratification insurance for his success at work unless he fully shares the cited thought and believes that it fits the context precisely." will not be forced to a demonstration or a rally if it runs counter to his desire and his will, will not take up or raise a banner or slogan in which he does not fully believe, will not raise a hand in vote for a proposal which he does not sincerely support, will not vote openly or in secret ballot for a candidate whom he deems dubious or unworthy, will not be impelled to a meeting where a forced and distorted discussion is expected to take place, will at once walk out from a session, meeting, lecture, play, or film as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda, will not subscribe to nor buy in retail a newspaper or journal that distorts or hides the underlying facts. This is by no means an exhaustive list of the possible and necessary way of evading lies, but he who begins to cleanse himself will, with a cleansed eye, easily discern yet other opportunities. Yet at first it will not be fair. Someone will have to temporarily lose his job. For the young who seek to live by truth, this will at first severely complicate life, for their tests and quizzes too are stuffed with lies, and so choices will have to be made, but there is no loophole left for anyone who seeks to be honest." Not even for a day, not even in the safest technical occupations can he avoid even a single one of the listed choices 
to be made in favor of either truth or lies, in favor of spiritual independence or spiritual servility. And as for him who lacks the courage to defend even his own soul, let him not brag of his progressive views, boast of his status as an academician or a recognized artist, a distinguished citizen or general. Let him say to himself plainly, I am cattle. I am a coward. I seek only warmth and to eat my fill. For us who have grown, stayed over time, even this most moderate path of resistance will not be easy to set out upon. But how much easier it is than self-immolation or even a hunger strike. Flames will not engulf your body, your eyes will not pop out from the heat, and your family will always have at least a piece of black bread to wash down with a glass of clear water. Betrayed and deceived by us, did not a great European people, the Czechoslovaks, Show us how one can stand down the tanks with bared chest alone, as long as inside it beats a worthy heart. It will not be an easy path, perhaps, but it is the easiest among those that lie before us. Not an easy choice for the body, but the only one for the soul. No, not an easy path. But then we already have among us people, dozens even, who have for years abided by all these rules, who live by the truth. And so... We need not be the first to set out on this path. Ours is but to join. The more of us set out together, the thicker our ranks, the easier and shorter. This path will be for us all. If we become thousands, they will not cope. They will be unable to touch us. If we will grow to tens of thousands, we will not recognize our country. But if we shrink away, then let us cease complaining that someone does not let us draw breath. We do it to ourselves. Let us then cower and hunker down while our comrades, the biologists, bring closer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes altered. And if from this also we shrink away, then we are worthless, hopeless, and it is of us that Pushkin asks with scorn, why offer herds their liberation, their heritage each generation, the yoke with jingles and the whip? February 12th. 1974. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.